Right, the question we're thinking about this morning is, what does a model church look like? What makes a model church? Now, you might be thinking, he's got the wrong W at the front of that statement. Surely it's, who makes a model church? And if that was the question, well, you might think it could be someone called Jim Miller. I had a wonderful picture of Jim Miller. Jim Miller, ever heard of Jim Miller? He has made over 70 scale models of churches out of matchsticks. Some of them are stunning. You know, they're not the sort of thing you put on your mantelpiece. They're far too big. But they are, you know, they are... He takes a church and he goes and he measures it and he takes pictures and then he constructs it out of matchsticks sticking together. Everyone's got to have a hobby, I suppose. That's not the sort of thing I would necessarily do. But Jim Miller makes a model church. But that's not what we're thinking about this morning. It's what makes a model church. What should a church be like? What is a church that we should be looking to copy look like? And by model, of course, I mean a church fellowship that is a good example to other churches and a watching world. I think that's what 1 Thessalonians 1 is all about. The church that's described for them there is in so many ways a model church. It's a church that you could look at and you think, wow, we need to copy them. And that's what Paul says we should be doing when we come to our reading this morning, the last four verses. That's what Paul is describing for us. And he's full of praise for them. He loves them for a start. He says, we always thank God for all of you. He's not saying, well, there's a group over there who I'm not so keen on, but generally the church is brilliant. He says, no, I love you all. They were all committed to the church. But Paul is not just spending that wonderful chapter voicing his appreciation for the church and how grateful he is for them. Paul doesn't want to just tell them that they're doing well. He wants to encourage them to keep going. Because it would seem that some of them are getting a bit discouraged Because life is pretty tough for them. As you'll know from David's sermons from the last couple of weeks, the start of the Thessalonian church was not ideal. I had a lovely map to show you. You'll have to imagine it. Paul sets off from Antioch, or maybe from Jerusalem. I can't remember. I haven't got the map in my mind. And he travels around Turkey, visiting churches that he's planted before and encouraging them. But then he has a dream. A man from Europe says, come and talk to us about Jesus. And so they cross the sea, they go to Philippi for a start, and then they come to Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, whichever, I don't really mind. Paul arrives in Thessalonica, and he starts preaching in the synagogue. Three weeks, it's wonderful. Loads of Jews are converted, Greeks are converted, men and women are converted, lots of people become Christians in those first three weeks. But then Rent-a-Mob turns up, and they're been pulled together by some people who hate Paul and what he's doing, and they try to grab Paul, but Paul disappears, not literally, it's not like a miracle happens, but Paul, they can't find him, they come in and say, where's Paul, and Paul's not there, so they grab Jason, who was the guy whose house Paul had been meeting in, and they drag Jason and several of the other Christians down to the courthouse. And they say to the judge in the court, these men have been turning the world upside down. They've come here to destroy Thessalonica. And the judge says, this is serious. And he says to Jason and to the other Christians, you've got to shut up about this. You've got to stop this Christianity rubbish. And to make it more worth your while, you're going to pay us a thousand pounds. And you'll get your thousand pounds back after six months if you've kept your mouth shut about Jesus. 
says in the Bible they posted Baal, but that's the sort of thing they were talking about. So they're under threat. That is a church that is three weeks old. None of them have been Christians for more than three weeks. Suddenly they're on their own, and they've got the judge in the local court telling them to keep quiet or else. How would you have felt? Arrested, fined, threatened, and separated from the ones who have taught you. My guess is initially they were quite excited. Why would I say that? Well, there would have been a bit of an adrenaline rush. They had heard about how Jesus had suffered and died for them. Now they're getting to suffer for Jesus. So they would have been excited by that, just like the apostles were in Acts chapter 4. You can read about it if you like. But I think after a few weeks had gone by, the excitement would have worn off. And it would have got a bit tedious, this constant opposition from people and from the police in Thessalonica. Paul now is in Athens, and he's thinking about his friends back in Thessalonica, and he's thinking, I wonder how they're getting on. I wonder if they're coping. I wonder if they're surviving as Christians. And when he can bear it no longer, he says, he sends Timothy back. Timothy's with him. He sends Timothy back to Thessalonica, and he says, find out how they're getting on. Paul then moves on to Corinth, And he waits in Corinth, and Timothy comes to Corinth with a brilliant report. Timothy tells Paul that he didn't need to worry because the Thessalonians were doing really well. So Paul is delighted, but there are still some problems. Because now Paul writes to them in Thessalonians chapter 1, a chapter of encouragement. Because Timothy tells Paul, They're doing great, but they are struggling a bit. They're hanging on, they're fighting, but they do find it hard. Maybe the suffering was getting even more tedious. Maybe in their darker moments they were starting to wonder if it was all really worth it. Maybe they were wondering if they really were Christians. Because if Jesus is in control of everything, and we're on Jesus' side, why do things keep going wrong? Maybe they're forgetting the excitement they had when they first became Christians. And they're thinking, did we just dream it? So Paul in his letter writes to encourage them to keep going in what they started so well. So the whole of chapter 1 is encouraging. He says, remember how you changed. Remember how your work has started. You are doing lots of things for Jesus And it's hard work, but you keep going. And even when people tell you to stop, you endure. Paul says, remember those things. You wouldn't have done that before. He says, remember your faith, your love, and your hope. Your faith in God, your love for each other, your hope in the coming of Jesus. He says, remember what changed you. God chose you, he said. You're not Christians by chance. You're Christians because God made it happen. Remember, it was the power of the Holy Spirit that convinced you that you needed to be saved. And when Jesus was preached, the Holy Spirit opened up your heart and you found eternal security in Jesus. That was the key to the church in Thessalonica being a prosperous, a model church. Now this morning we see one final thing that Paul is so thrilled about and causes him to thank God continually for. Not only did they copy good examples in verse 6, they also became great examples 
for the rest of the church. So you're going to have to have a Bible now. If you've got a Bible, please have it open because we're going to go through verses 7 to 10. 1 Thessalonians 1. Verse 7 says, So you became models to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul says, you are a model church. And he says, we know you're a model church because you're connected to the rest of the church. You're not on your own in this. There are Christians all over the Roman Empire talking about you, who love you, who are praying for you. He says, what you're doing as church is not just about you. It's about the whole world. He's reminding them this is more than just about them. We still struggle with this, don't we? When life is tough, a sense of loneliness can make things so much worse. I think that's what was happening at Thessalonica. They felt they were on their own. And Paul says, you're not. You've got brothers and sisters all over who know about you, who love you, who are praying for you, who are taking their example from you. The church in Thessalonica felt the whole world was out to get them. Paul says, no, it's only a few numpties in the local town hall who are out to get you. There are loads of people in your Christian family. You're doing a great job. and The whole world is talking about you. That's what he says in verse 8. The Lord's message, the gospel of Jesus, rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, that's the part of Greece around Thessalonica, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we, Paul says, don't need to, do, don't need to say anything about it. You're doing us out of a job, Paul says. It's my job to go and tell people about Jesus, but you're doing it so well, we don't need to say anything now. Paul's joking, of course, but he's trying to encourage them. Paul is way down south in Corinth. If you imagine the map, there's the north of Greece there, and Corinth is right down there, 200 miles away. And Paul says, I'm hearing reports of what you're doing. You've really started something. That's what people were saying to Paul when they came to visit him. Paul was in Corinth, and they'd sit down with Paul for a cup of coffee and say, Paul, you really started something in Thessalonica. What they're doing up there is brilliant. People were coming from all over Greece and talking to Paul about this. Have you heard about the Thessalonians, Paul? They're on fire for the Lord. And Paul says it's not only in Greece. Your faith in God has been known everywhere. People were coming to Paul from all over the Roman world and talking about the Christians in Thessalonica. We know that a couple called Priscilla and Aquila traveled to Corinth from Rome about this time. Maybe when they sat down for supper with Paul one night, they said, Paul, we've been hearing about the people in Thessalonica, the Christians there and what they're doing. If they'd heard in Rome, then Paul could say they were being talked about around the Roman Empire. Just imagine how encouraging that would have been for the Christians in Thessalonica to realize that they're not on their own. It's not just them against the rest of the world. They've got brothers and sisters everywhere who are on their side, who are backing them, who are praying for them, who are grateful for them. That's why it's so important that churches aren't isolated. We share fellowship with brothers and sisters all over Suffolk through the association that we're part of, through the FIEC, through other links that we have as a church. 
we have links with churches around the country. By the way, I was with the church in Tring last weekend. They said, do send your love or our love to the church at Grace Church Rendlesham. They will be praying for us. They've told me that several times. It's encouraging, isn't it? That there are Christians in other churches who are praying for us. People have heard about Grace Church Rendlesham or Sudbury and Tunstall Baptist Church. That's hard to think, isn't it? I was at a conference a few weeks, years ago now, three or four years ago now, and a guy came up to me afterwards. He was from somewhere out the West Country, and he said, where are you from? I said, oh, I'm from Suffolk. He said, where in Suffolk? I said, oh, you won't have heard of it. It's near Woodbridge. He said, no, tell me where. I said, oh, well, here we go, Sudbury Tunstall Baptist Church. Told you never heard of it. He said, my sister lives in Sudbury. I've been there a few times. I'm really pleased that she's been along to your church a couple of times. We pray for you that you would continue to see our sister, my sister and her husband. What are the chances? I've got a book here, the Pray for 100 book. Remember that from last year? We got that. A hundred churches around the country that we can pray for. Some of us use that book in our quiet times, in our prayer times. Several times over the last year, David and I have had emails from churches all around the country saying, we're using this book, we've been praying for you this week, anything more we can pray for you about? So important to be linked. Very important. When we go on holiday, it is so good to be able to spend time with other churches, not just cutting ourselves off from church. We must move on. They were a connected church. The question is, what were people saying about the church in Thessalonica that was so brilliant? In what way were they a model church? Were they brilliant on their theology? They'd worked out the mysteries of the Bible and they could explain anything. No, they were very young Christians. There was lots that they didn't understand. Was it that their lifestyle was exemplary. They never did anything wrong. They always did everything right. Well, no, as we read through Thessalonians, we're going to see that Paul has to say, actually, you shouldn't be doing that, and you should be doing that, and don't do that whatever you do, because they were doing things that they shouldn't have been doing. That's not why they were exemplary. They were The reason they were exemplary was their message. Their passion for the good news about Jesus and their willingness to tell other people. Paul says the gospel rang out. It's like there's a massive bell in Thessalonica. And when it's struck, the sound goes out for miles, hundreds of miles through the work of this church. They were a gospel church. That's what I want to finish with now. They loved the gospel and they tried to spread the gospel Three things about their gospel preaching when we finish. And they sort of begin with R. David had three G's for his points two weeks ago. I was challenged by that. So I've tried to get three R's now for the three things that the um, Thessalonians loved about the gospel or was part of their gospel message. I'm not very good at this. And so you'll think that this is absolutely awful now. The first thing that they mentioned in their gospel was wrath, which of course begins with W, but it sounds like an R, doesn't it? So never mind. When Paul went to Thessalonica, he warned the people who came to hear him that the wrath of God was coming. And that's the message that the church took and then started to spread. Now, of course, on one level, that's deeply disturbing, isn't it? That's unsettling. 
For some of us, that will be a word that we associate perhaps with a relative or a friend, so-called friend, who or has an explosive temper who flies off the handle for no apparent reason. The word wrath in that sense is horrible. It's terrible. And if you've been harmed by that sort of wrath in the past, I am so sorry for you and would love to pray for you and with you if you want to talk about that. It's nowhere near as uncommon as I wish it was. But that is 100% not the sort of wrath that we talk about when we talk about God's wrath. The wrath of God, you see, is not a fly-off-the-handle, irrational wrath. It is calm. It is rational. It is level-headed. It is intense opposition to all that is evil. The Bible says nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And when God sees something that is evil, he will act against it. He will deal with it because God is perfect in his justice. Some people think that God's goodness and his justice are sort of opposites and intention. They are intention. But actually God's justice is a good thing. Because if God didn't have justice, he couldn't be good. God is good, so he will judge. Injustice matters to God massively, far more than it matters to us. Injustice is one of the things that concerns us most, isn't it? I don't know if you've seen the new documentary, docudrama about the life of Jimmy Savile. I haven't watched it yet. I might. I'm not sure. One of the horrible things about that story was that it looked like he got off scot-free. He did those awful things and then he died. Where's the justice in that? The Bible says he didn't get off. He didn't escape justice. God will ensure that. And that's a really good thing. His victims matter massively to God. The situation in the last week in Israel is horrific, extremely worrying. Thousands dead on each side, and it could get a whole lot worse. It makes us angry that those atrocities should happen. Who's to blame? Who will see that justice is done? No one out in the Middle East are able to do that. No one can fix that situation at the moment. It's the Rugby World Cup at the moment. One of the reasons I love rugby is the way the referees act. Have you ever seen that? Something happens, an incident happens. Someone takes offence on the other team and then a 30-man brawl ensues. And it's chaos. The referee steps back. He waits for it to calm down. And then he talks to his mate up in the studio. The mate has a look at all the footage. They work out exactly what's happened. And then the person who starts it, the person who is guilty of it, gets punished. That's a lot like God's wrath. He doesn't dive in and start pulling people apart. He watches. He sees. And then he acts. That's a good thing. This world would be unbearable if there was no justice. But there is. But it's also worrying because according to the Bible, we all deserve God's wrath. So why were the Thessalonians so keen to talk about it? Well, that's our second R. The wrath of God is something we can be rescued from. Verse 10 talks about the wonderful Jesus who can rescue us from the coming wrath. That was, 
what or who the Thessalonians were excited about. They wanted to tell the world about Jesus who could rescue people from what they deserved. And how does Jesus rescue? Well, Jesus rescues by taking the punishment that other people deserve. Jesus was the one person in the whole of history who was not evil in God's sight. Jesus was the only one who obeyed the most important command in the Bible. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. None of us have done that, so all of us deserve God's wrath. God has given us every good thing that we have. None of us have accepted God's rule. We've said, no, we don't want you, God. And you don't get away with that sort of rebellion, no matter how much, how you might, no matter how much you might tell yourself otherwise. But when Jesus died, he died a death, a traitor's death, a criminal's death. Not for his own tri- tre- treasons and crimes, but for the sins of others. He was dying to make rescue from wrath possible. But the historical fact that Jesus died on undeserved death doesn't change anything for us. That's where our third R comes in. Response. Listen to what the Thessalonians were famous for doing. Everyone's talking about how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven. That's what the Thessalonians had done. And now this is what they're telling other people they can do too. Thessalonica was a pagan city. There was lots of different gods being worshipped in shrines and temples. The Thessalonians realized that the true God is the only God who deserves to be worshipped. And so they turned from their idols to the true God. We don't worship pagan gods, but we do worship other gods. Who do we live for? Who do our lives revolve around? What do we long for? What is most important to us? What is at the forefront of our minds when we make our decisions throughout the day, throughout our lives? If it's not Jesus, then the things we're making decisions for are our idols. They may be good things, good relationships, good things that have become God things to us. Could be children, could be friends, could be our health, could be our stuff, could be our jobs, our bank balances, our hobbies. If these things are at the front of our minds when we make our decisions, our choices in life, our priorities, the things we talk about most, the things we pray about most, then those things are idols. And the Thessalonians were famous from turning from all those things to serve Jesus. And now they're doing all they can to encourage others to do the same. That's why they are a model church. That was the message of the Lord that rang out from them. That's what we need to embrace if we want to be rescued from God's wrath. There are loads more to say. But I just, I'm out of time. We had a late start, I know, so I could keep going till 12, but I'm not going to do that to you. As we finish, if you're not a Christian, how does this response work in practice? It's a prayer, something like this. Listen to these words. They were going on the screen. Just focus on these words in your mind. This is the sort of prayer you have to pray. If you want to turn from your sin, from your idols, to Jesus. Lord Jesus, I recognize that you are God. 
and have the right to control my life. I have rebelled against you, sinning in thought, word and deed. I'm sorry for the way I've lived. I ask you to forgive me. Thank you for dying for me on the cross. Please come into my life and take control so that I can be ready when God's wrath is unleashed. Amen. That's the sort of prayer. I'm going to read it again now. And if you're thinking, yes, I want to do that, why not pray it along with me? Say amen in your heart as we finish. And if you do, tell someone. If you've got any questions, please ask. If you want to discover more, we'd love to spend time with you on that. But this is the sort of prayer that comes from a heart that wants to turn from idols to the living God, Lord Jesus. I recognize that you are God and have the right to control my life. I have rebelled against you, sinning in thought and word and deed. I'm sorry for the way I've lived and ask you to forgive me. Thank you for dying for me on the cross. Please come into my life and take complete control so that I can be ready. Amen.